Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Joseph Pepe, MD, President and Chief Executive Officer of Catholic Medical Center Healthcare System in Manchester, New Hampshire. Dr. Pepe has served the CMC Healthcare System since 1990, first as a staff physician, then as Chief Medical Officer, and since 2012 as the System President and CEO. The advice he gives early careerists entering the field of administration is to volunteer for additional responsibility and that formal positions will follow. His own career reflects that fact. In the interview, Dr. Pepe describes his choice to become a primary care physician and how his interest in improving the operations of the practice resulted in him being voluntold that he would be the chief medical officer for CMC. After 13 years of successful leadership as the chief medical officer, Dr. Pepe was selected to lead CMC as the CEO and president. We discuss strategy and how Dr. Pepe is working with the board and senior management to ensure CMC's success in a rapidly changing healthcare environment while remaining true to CMC's Catholic identity. We conclude with a discussion of leadership and mentorship. I really enjoyed this interview because Dr. Pepe made it clear that CMC's identity as a faith-based organization goes beyond just a historical origin. It is critical to the organization's mission today and influences its strategy on an ongoing basis. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Joe Pepe. Welcome to The Forge, Joe. Thank you very much. You graduated from St. Anselm College here in Manchester in 1983 with a Bachelor of Arts in Biology. Why did you choose St. Anselm and, and why did you study biology? Well, I knew I wanted to be a physician since I was very, very small. And so I knew I was going to need to go into pre-med. They didn't really have a specific pre-med program at St. Anselm, but they had a biology program that was the closest to pre-med that they were, that there was at the time. And I thought that St. Anselm was a perfect match for me because it was a small college. It was relatively close to home, but more importantly, it was a liberal arts college. And I felt that I was going to go into sci sciences and I needed that well-roundedness that a liberal arts education would give me. How did you know you, or how did you come to know that you wanted to be a physician? Why did, why did you? That's an interesting story. I, I would say that my parents respected physicians greatly, and I saw that. So I gravitated to it, wanting to please them initially. Okay. And then I found that I just loved science, and I started reading about it and wanting to do it more and more. And by the time I was in high school, I worked as an operating room technician, I worked as an orderly, I worked as a nursing assistant, and I worked as a home health aide. Yeah. When I was about 
uh, almost 17, I was involved in a major car accident in which I broke my neck. Oh. Um, and I, I was paralyzed from the neck down and I spent um, many weeks in the hospital with rehabilitation and, and so forth. And I knew that just strengthened my reasoning for wanting to become a physician. And so I, I moved on to study hard and I didn't miss a beat in high school, went to college. And um, so I, I literally, I have told people that because of all those, those positions I've had, along with being a patient myself, and as well as being a caretaker, a physician, a chief medical officer, and a CEO. If there's another side of a bed, then someone needs to tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you graduated from St. Anselm and you attended medical school at Tufts University a School of Medicine in Boston where you earned an MD. What most surprised you about medical school? Was it what you expected? Was there anything that, that you weren't expecting? I think there were a few things I, I wasn't expecting, and that is the first was that I was used to being at the very, very top of my class. And all of a sudden, you're in medical school, and there's only so many medical schools, a very competitive field, and I found that while I was at, I was doing well, I was certainly not at the top one to three in my class, and that was a big blow to my ego. Um, so that was the first part. And I think the second part were the, well, the second part was the fact that the students there were less of a fit with me at, uh, from St. Anselm to a, an area of professional school. I guess the best way of saying that is that I came from a uh, cab driver's son and a waitress's son, and many of the people I went to medical school with mm -hmm. um, were had professionals as parents. Okay. And so that was a little bit of a, um, um, a, a change. And, and also, I was expecting more people from the area, and I remember distinctly on the very first class, I raised my hand and I said, excuse me to the professor, what's the number with the bar over it? And they said, and everyone turned around and said, number, bar, where are you from? And I said, I'm from right here. Where are you guys from? And they were from California and Hawaii and all these other places. And so, so it, was, it was interesting. I was out of my element, let's just say. Okay. You were home, uh, Tufts being in, in Boston, but right. out of your element because everybody was from so many other places. Correct. Okay. So... Um, you graduated from Tufts and you attended a internal medicine residency at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is out in the western side of the state. Correct. What attracted you to internal medicine? Well, I always wanted to be a physician that uh, did it all. Okay. And I just felt that if I went into one specialty, the good news is I would be able to master a lot of that specialty. but. I always thought of, in my mind, uh, as a physician, of knowing a lot about everything. And so that's what got me into internal medicine, and that's why I stayed in primary care. I really liked the relationship with patients, and I liked knowing a lot about everything. Also, I think that uh, it was just in my mindset, that's what a physician was, so. Okay. So a question about physician identity. Mm. Um, society holds physicians in high regard, as you mentioned your, your family did. Being a physician is usually an, an important part of a person's identity once you've achieved it. 
When did you feel like you had really become a physician? I mean, was it when you graduated from medical school? Or was it somewhere later? Well, it, it certainly wasn't when I graduated from medical school. Although I received an MD, as we all do, right. I felt like an imposter. <laughs> uh, that's the best way to uh, describe it. Uh, I think that it's a gradual socialization process of getting that identity, learning the language, learning the attitude, the way you conduct yourself, and the professionalism that goes with that. So I would say it certainly was a gradual process, but when did I first feel that, that I was indeed a physician? It was I would say it was in my last year of residency, probably six months left to go, I was thinking about flying out of the nest at that point, and I felt like I had enough tools and I had enough information to make it on my own. So upon completing your residency at Bay State in 1990, you came here to Catholic Medical Center and joined the Catholic Medical Center Primary Care Associates. What brought you back to Manchester and Catholic Medical Center? Well, I've always had a some small thing in my heart about uh, New Hampshire and, of, and specifically Manchester, New Hampshire because that's where I went to school here at St. Anselm. Mm -hmm. And I had a great time here. I met my wife at St. Anselm. We were engaged at St. Anselm in Manchester, New Hampshire. We were married at St. Anselm. Oh, nice. and, uh, and so, and, and the other part of it was that when I did come back here, CMC was an organization that made me feel like I belonged. They made me felt, feel like they wanted me, whereas other places I went to, they made me feel like I needed them. And so it was that fit feeling that made me, made me say yes and, and pursue a professional career here. I've done a couple of interviews in Manchester, but in case folks haven't listened to those and are not from New Hampshire, mm -hmm. uh, can you briefly talk about Manchester as a community, kind of where it is and what makes it special? Sure. Manchester, New Hampshire, I think is a very special place. I, I think that when I tell my colleagues that are not from around here, that we're an hour from the lakes, an hour from the ocean, an hour from Boston, an hour to the mountains, they think that it's not real. They think I'm making it up. Having said that, I try not to tell too many people because I don't want it to get crowded. <laughs> but but it's, it's a great place. New Hampshire is a great place uh, for a career. There, you know, it's not just uh, no taxes and, and no sales tax and, and, and income tax and so forth, but it's run like a small town. Uh, it is a place where everyone can get to know everyone and you're not lost in the crowd. It has access to a lot of professional entertainment and growth education. And so I believe that there's no better place. Now, is it perfect? No. Could, it, could the winter be just a little bit small, um, less? <laughs> yes. But, you know, not every place has everything. But I think this place has most things that most people want. So can you tell us a little bit about Catholic Medical Center? What are its origins and, and what, what makes it special as an organization? Sure. Our, our origins go back to 1892 with Sacred Heart and a couple of years later, 1894, Notre Dame Hospital, which is, the, which is where CMC is located today. Those Catholic hospitals came together and merged in 1974 to form Catholic Medical Center. We have a history, a long history, of 
being Catholic. We have a Catholic identity. We follow the ethical and religious directives for healthcare services. And I believe that that Catholicity has helped with our culture and our mission of this institution. And this is why uh, I believe we're a special place and I believe we're pretty unique. When I hear from other, other um, nurses and doctors and staff members who've been to other hospitals, both in this state and outside the state, they come to me after a week or after a month and say, this is amazing. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's run like a family organization. People are kind, people are compassionate, people go out of their way to help you, and that's what I think keeps people here. We have a, a very, very good retention rate, and there are many people who are getting their, their, their 30-year pins and their 40-year pins, and, and I think to myself, they must have been here when they were 12. <laughs> but, um, but it is a very special place, and what, it, and what attracts me to Catholic Medical Center is the mission of the organization the high ethics that it has. Uh, it's a fit for my personality and my core values is very similar to organization's core values. What is the mission of, of Catholic Medical Center? Well, the mission of Catholic Medical Center, we, we shorten it to say it's health, healing, and hope. But, but it goes on to say that we provide health care to everyone that wants or needs our care. So regardless of the ability to pay, we take on everyone that comes through our doors. So we are very, very strong in our community benefit. In fact, we give more charity care, this is according to not me, but the IRS, we give more charity care as a percent of revenue than any other hospital in the state. Wow. More than double the national average for nonprofit hospitals. We're very, very proud of that. We, we don't just write checks, we're out in the community. We have a Prasan Dental Center, which we provide dental care for all the children that don't have the insurance. We have a pregnancy care center, so if, you, if a woman uh, finds themselves pregnant and they don't have the ability to pay, they, ha they get just the same care, prenatal care, in maternal care delivery as anyone that has the best insurance in the world. And we have, we provide medical care for the homeless, homeless shelters, New Horizon. We have, we have providers that go out there and provide that care. We provide the medical care for the Farnham Center, which is a detox center, families in transitions. We even have nurses that go around in vans and give immunizations to to folks that live under the bridge. And so it's a, it's a very, very community-oriented organization, and we really take our mission and our nonprofit status very, very seriously. Can you give us some sense of the size of the organization, maybe number of beds, uh, number of physicians, sort of sure. statistics? So it depends on, like anything else, is how you count. We have a 330 license bed, which would make us the second largest in the state. There are 26 hospitals. But if you go by revenue, uh, particularly patient net service revenue, we're probably around four. But the spread between two and four isn't very much. So we're at the top of the largest organizations in, in the healthcare care field. 
Uh, we have 180,000 visits a year, 36,000 emergency room visits. We have over 500 physicians who are on staff here okay. uh, and uh, about 600 nurses. Total employees, about 2,500. It's a significant organization. It is. <laughs> so coming back to your career, what sure. was, what was your, the relationship between CMC Primary Care Associates and CMC? Was this practice owned by the hospital? Were you an employee or was this some, an independent organization? So when it first started, it, there was a third party who contracted with us to be employed and that par third party contracted with the hospital. Okay. So we were indirectly employed. Okay. After a few years, we became directly employed by the hospital. I, I tend to have an innovative attitude, in, uh, but I decided I wanted to be employed from the very beginning, mostly because I could take care of patients without any regard to a conflict of interest. I didn't have to worry about making sure they got lab tests at my the lab that was in the office, making sure they had a bone scan at the office bone scan, making sure they had things that was good for business but might not necessarily be good for them or be as cost efficient for them. So it, in being employed as a primary care physician, I was able to give the patients exactly what I felt they needed without that conflict of interest that even under the best circumstances, but human nature can, uh, can spoil. You served as a staff physician until 1999 when you became the Vice President of Medical Affairs and the Chief Medical Officer. You served in that role until 2012. What made you decide you wanted to transition from being a staff physician to a leadership role? And what was your leadership experience prior to that, if you had any? Well, it's a great question. Most people actually make that decision I, I didn't make that decision. I, I, I gravitate just by the nature of my personality toward leadership positions because I want to get things done. So I became somewhat leader of my group, putting things together, being fair and equitable, making the schedule and things like that. I volunteered to be on committees and rose to leadership positions because people chose me to be in leadership positions, to the point where the former CEO militarily volunteered me to be the <laughs> chief medical officer. My first thought was, well, yes, but what do they do? And so, so that was interesting. And then I was the chief medical officer uh, and doing very well and very content doing that and putting my head down when our CEO suddenly left. and the chair of the board of trustees walked into my office and said, you're now the interim CEO. And I said, okay, what, is, what do I do? <laughs> and so finally I decided, sure, I'll take that role on, but make sure that when you go out for a national search, I go back into my role as chief medical officer. And they did a national search. I, they kept asking me to throw my hat in the ring. I said no, but the third time I finally said yes. I threw my hat in the ring and they interviewed about, they, they had about 12 final candidates. They were bringing in six 
to the committee, uh, the CEO committee, and their job was to have the six whittled down and present three to the board. But at the end of all of it, they only presented me to the board. So once again, I was militarily volunteered to be the CEO. <laughs> we call that voluntold. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to your role as, as chief medical officer, uh, can you describe the duties of the Vice President of Medical Affairs and CMO at, at CMC? Well, that's interesting because I'll describe the duties of most CEOs, um, but because there's no CMO school, mm. I didn't go to school to become a CMO, mm -hmm. I really didn't know what the job was. So I went above and beyond what the role usually is as Vice President of Medical Affairs and Chief Medical Officer. The normal role is you oversee the medical staff, the quality, the peer review, and pretty much that's your role, and your role is also a liaison between the medical staff and the administration. So that's the traditional role of a Chief Medical Officer. Because I didn't know any better, I, uh, I became involved in pretty much every department because by nature I'm a problem solver and I like to help and so people came to me and I found myself entwined in virtually almost every department aside from the gift shop. <laughs> I, I, I say to people all the time that when I became CEO I picked up the gift shop. Gift shop. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I didn't know it at the time but, but I was prepared preparing myself for CEO when I was the CMO, but just didn't know it. How is the medical staff organized at CMC when you took over, and is it still organized the same way? Can you kind of explain how that works? Yeah, it was, I would say it was organized into many different departments, and there were fiefdoms, and when I came in, I changed that to only two departments, a medical department and a surgical department. Uh, also, just by the nature of the beast, we started a uh, hospice program and once we did that the internists no longer came to the hospital we we couldn't we wanted them associated with the hospital and they wanted to be associated with the hospital but we didn't know how to do that so I came up with this idea of creating a different section called uh, active ambulatory and active ambulatory where they can say they're active at the hospital but really they don't go into the hospital but they're very much associated with the hospital, and it comes with different kinds of privileges as what an internist used to have. And that caught on, and it went right out through New Hampshire as that active ambulatory, and many of the other hospitals now have a section very similar to that. And I would say that uh, one of the things that I instituted was in peer review. It was, it was always difficult with peer review because people think of it no matter how much you say it's not, people think of it as punitive. And in fact, in the past, it had been punitive. So I wanted to change that culture because it's all about learning and improving and not about being punitive. At the same time, I wasn't of the type that felt that it should be a blameless culture because people need to be accountable for their behaviors. So I introduced to the medical staff just culture. And just culture is, is that the actions that you take on issues, whether it be mistakes or certain behaviors, is based on the behavior rather than the outcome. So in that particular sense, 
that even if the outcome was great, if the behavior was reckless, that person deserved a harsher penalty than someone who makes a mistake because they're human. And it had to do perhaps with the system of being human and not having a system that was supportive of what they should be doing or what they could miss. And so we introduced that um, to the medical staff and that, will con that continues to this day. So as you mentioned, in January of 2012, you were appointed as the interim president and CEO. And then in August of 2012, you were confirmed as the president and CEO. So how did your 13 years as the CMO prepare you for that role, other than the gift shop, of course? Right, right. <laughs> I, think it I think one of the most difficult parts of being the chief medical officer was that you had to have very good conflict you have to be good at conflict resolution. Many times, whether it was between a physician and another physician, or a physician and administration, physician and a nurse, physician and a tech, or a tech and a nurse, you had to be the facilitator of conflict resolution. And, and that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about human dynamics and human nature. And I learned myself as I went along how to be actually even more professional than I was as a physician and know that it is, it's not the, the person that is bad, it's, it's, once again, it's going back to the behaviors. And so part of my job was, was teaching, part of my job was mentoring, part of my job was helping people find the right solution in the right way with the politics that are over, over and above all of that. So it, it, it really prepared me for what the CEO job is to the 10th degree uh, and, uh, and getting along with and understanding and listening to a wide array of individuals and positions and then formulating op an opinion before not before you heard all the opinions. Uh, and that's a tough thing to do. By human nature, you tend to believe the first person that, that talks to you or, or uh, explains things to you. And you have to set that aside. And that's a tough thing to do. But, you ha but it's, a learned, it's a learned response. And you can do it. And uh, that was quite helpful. OK. What is a day in the life of the CEO at uh, CMC like? Wow. Well, a lot of meetings. <laughs> I would say that uh, the day in the life of a CEO is, is up and down. It's, you know, I always say that of all the jobs I've, I've had, this has the highest highs and the lowest lows. And one minute I could be uh, with a, a person in an animal suit collecting a big check for a donation, and then the, the very next minute, Literally, I'm making multi-million dollar decisions or strategic de decisions that will affect this institution for decades to come. So it's changing from one to the other is, is I find fascinating and um, stimulating, but also challenging. Sure. Uh, that sounds dizzying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what would you say are the, is an advantage of having a physician as a hospital CEO? 
Sure. I would say that there is no better time than now to have a physician as, as a CEO. And the reason for that is that we are changing right now from our payment system from volume to value. In other words, we, we, for 100 years, we've been paid for how much we do. And now we're going to be in the future, we're going to get paid by how well we do it. And that means that we had, have to come up with that value proposition. And that value proposition is quality plus patient experience divided by cost. And who better to understand all those realms than a physician administrator? So I think that knowing that was a, was a big part of, of the success that we've had in uh, CMC over the last four years. Uh, and it comes with assembling a team that is excellent and everyone around me is much smarter than I am and, uh, and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that also being a physician, I know how physicians think and they are a major st stakeholder in the growth and the strategy of a hospital. So I can meet with them one-on-one -on -one and I can teach the other administrators how they're thinking, why they're thinking uh, certain ways and get into their heads and be that uh, in-between person who can bring it together. Because ultimately, we have the same goals, but we have to understand each other in order to row in the same direction. Just a side question. Sure. Do you ever get to see patients anymore? Other I, than the hallway, in right, the gift shop? Right. <laughs> no, I, I, as a chief medical officer, I, I still saw patients, but once I became the um, CEO, it was just too overwhelming to do. This is, this is really a job, uh, um, a two-person job, yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I had to say. So I do see patients for, in the hallways, and <laughs> I visit um, patients that were former patients that are in the hospital. And also, I do still keep up with the literature because I f find it interesting, but I, would, but I do not see patients other than the folks that call me and, and ask for a second opinion. <laughs> <laughs> What metrics do you track as CEO, both kind of short-term and long-term? What, what are you keeping track of? What, do you have a dashboard of some sort that, that you're looking at? Sure. I would say that what, what we look at is uh, we have a, um, a pillar, uh, pillars of organizational success. So we look at uh, people, service, quality, finance, and growth. And we have metrics along all of those lines. Uh, we, so, but I would have to say if I had to look at uh, the important and measures that we look at quite frequently. Certainly it's finances, but it's also qu many quality and safety issues, compliance issues, strategic issues of growth and where we're going because it's so important for us to be around for the next 100 years. So the decisions that we need to make and the decisions that CEOs should be making is not, are not the decisions that, that make us look good or make me look good next quarter. It's to make the institution good 20 years from now. And that, I think, is the key to, to moving an organization in the right direction. And sometimes that's forgotten in other industries. What is the thing that people outside of healthcare least, least understand about running a hospital and a health system? Hmm. You know, I would say that judging by the feedback I get 
from our board of directors, I would say that most people don't realize how complex this industry is. Uh, between the quality and the, the heavy regulations that we have to put up with, it is, it is just so extremely complex. Uh, there's a lot of risk involved. And when I have business leaders on the board who are in everything from, from major businesses that are five times as big as this to the, def the defense industry, and they come to me and they say, this is about 10 times more complex than our industry. I realize that um, this is a very, very complex industry that people don't realize or understand uh, to that degree. You mentioned the board, so let me, let me ask you a couple quick questions about the board. What is the function of the CMC Health Systems Board? And at what level does the board interact with the operations of the system? Sure. I, I would say that the function, functions of the CMC Board is the function of what I think is any good board, and that is there's a fiduciary responsibility, in, certainly in finance. With hospitals in particular, there's a uh, a responsibility to oversee quality and safety and credentialing of physicians and other providers and also overseeing the short and long-term strategic plan of the uh, institution. I do believe that that their role is to advise, is to support, and, is, and it's to bring their talent to help the management team move in the right direction. Uh, I think that it's not their job or any the job of a f highly functioning board is to get into the operations of the hospital or the business because that's why we're getting paid. And, um, and it, it's important for them to be at a 30,000 foot level. And luckily, we have a great board that is at that level. What kind of people are on your board? You mentioned a, a wide array of, um, uh, of industries, it sounds like. Yes. How do, how do people come to be on your board? So a lot of it is about what talent we need and what gaps we might have on the board itself. So we have physicians on our board. We probably have more physicians on our board than any other community hospital in New Hampshire. By our, our bylaws state that we have to have at least 25% physicians, and we have actually a little bit more than that. But also, in addition to that, doctors and nurses, we have clergy, we have business leaders, other CEOs, other executive vice um, presidents, community leaders, uh, and we have, we have people that are in industries that we just need more help with, whether it be finance, or whether it be insurance, or risk, or uh, things like that. So every year we evaluate what our needs are, and then it goes to a board of governors who look at that, and there's usually 12 people that we start off with, and we whittle that down to uh, maybe three a year that change over okay. on average. How large is your board? Uh, our board is large by industry standards. We're probably at around 20. Okay. Uh, the industry standard is somewhere around 12 to 14. So it is a very large board. The terms, uh, we have a three-year term, 
and we have two terms uh, that we have. So you can come back on if you're out for a year. Uh, you could potentially come back on, and we've had a, a few people do that. But uh, we strongly believe in term limits and fresh blood. What do you find most challenging about your job? What keeps you up at night when you go home? I would say that the most challenging part of my job now is bandwidth. We are doing so much with the resources we have that I often get concerned that I'm putting too much pressure and too much, uh, too many things into a small group of individuals. We have so much more external strategic initiatives and partnerships going on that we've never had before at this institution just by the very nature of, of where the hospital industry is going. And so there's, there's, kind of, there's, there's kind of two jobs going on at all times. I always feel like I have one foot in one arena and one foot in the other arena. And, and so what are the arenas? I, I have one foot in the present, but you have to also have one foot in the future. I have one foot internally, but you have to have one foot externally as well. Okay. And, and so I have, and, and because of this volume to value isn't, doesn't turn on a dime, I have one foot in the volume world and one foot in the value world. And so trying to prioritize that and trying to make sure that you give enough time in the right places at the right time is a challenge. What keeps me up at night is, is virtually just that. It's the bandwidth. It's, it's, it's the idea that we're not doing enough, that we can't do enough because we don't have enough resources to do what we absolutely want and need to do. You mentioned external projects that you're involved with. Can you give an example? Sure. So Catholic Medical Center just recently, as of yesterday, signed a letter of intent with Monadnock Hospital. And about a month or so ago, we signed a letter of intent to affiliate with Huggins Hospital in Wolfboro. So what we're doing in the external, what we CMC, is we're involved in these partnerships. And these, these two hospitals, both Monadnock and Huggins Hospital, they are going to create a, a system that we will be a part of, and there'll be three hospitals a part of that new system. If, obviously, I like to say when, that definitive agreement occurs. So, so there's a lot to, that goes in the, that letter of intent to affiliate, and there'll be a lot of work that goes now because we have to do our due diligence on these hospitals and they have to do it on ours. We have to then get approval from the board, and in our case, also the bishop. And then further, we have to get approval of the regulators, including the state in the federal government, the FTC, and in, in the Department of Justice. So there's a lot going on from there, and that's just some of the external things that, that CMC is involved in. We're involved in the Granite Health, which is uh, a, uh, a group of five organizations uh, that came together for population health, and we formed, uh, we're one of the few uh, community hospitals in the country that, that actually have an equity ownership in a brand new insurance company called Tufts Health Freedom Plan. So we just did that last year, and so we're actually 50% ownership in 
a new insurance company that is rolled out in January, and there's going to be CMC will roll roll it out in July, and so I can go on and on, but you don't have enough tape. <laughs> <laughs> um, what surprised you most about taking on the CEO role? What was different about it than you expected? And by this, I mean the role, not the organization. And you had had a view for quite mm -hmm. a while from the CMO seat. Right. What what? But when you actually stepped into the role, what, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the, the most was the influence of the position. I, I pretty much came from a humble background, and, and when I came into the CEO job, especially being in an, an internal candidate, I didn't realize how much things would change on what I said, what I did my body language, everything I said was amplified. Everything I did was projected. And I just didn't realize how much of that was taking place. Things that I were able to say before and could be thought of as a joke were now hurtful to some people because I had to, because I was in a different role. And I quickly had to understand that and incorporate that and realize that I'm always on all the time, 24-7. I can't be walking down the, the sky bridge and looking down or be with my thoughts. I have to be smiling. Or people would say, what's wrong? Something's going on in the hospital. And <laughs> even when I'm out in the community, I'm always the CEO. And, and, and that is just more than I expected. I think the I knew I expected it, but I think the degree was much higher than I th anticipated. How have you grown into that into that role now? Between what you just described and kind of just the role generally in the last, you've been in it now for four years. Yes. How have you grown into it? I would say that I have grown into it by by really learning to take a b little bit more of a backseat. I have honed, I believe, my leadership skills. Uh, even more so than when I was the chief medical officer. And I feel good about that because I, I see others grow and that makes me feel good. And when you have good people around you, you don't need to be a micromanager. And I'm certainly not a micromanager. I, I love to let people go and do their job, and I believe it engages them and makes them feel, have, have a, uh, a sense of self-worth and uh, makes them want to work harder and be more loyal to the organization. Can you talk a little bit about your strategic planning process, the processes you've participated in over time and, and what you're using now? How does that incorporate maybe your, your staff, the board? How does that all work here at, at CMC? Yeah, I, I, the strategic plan is interesting because uh, it used to be that a hospital would have a strategic plan of, you know, five, seven, maybe even ten years. And because this market is moving so fast and there are so many variables uh, going on at once, that anything more than three years is like looking into a crystal ball. So we knew that we had to have a retreat, and that's what we do. We have a retreat with the, with the board members. M you know, management does a lot of prep work prior to that, 
and we do a lot of education to the board prior to that, but ultimately it's the retreat where we formulate our plan. And what we've done is we've, we've said we really can't predict certain things in the future. So how do we deal with that? How do you deal with a direction if you really don't know what the future holds? And so what we came up with were, were principles, guiding principles, and we fell back on the basics of, well, if we, we, we realize we can't be independent because no hospital can be independent as we move from volume to value. You have to, in some way, shape, or form, collaborate, partner, merge, do whatever you need to do to gain scale and scope. So how are we going to evaluate the opportunities going forward? So we went back to these guiding principles and those, those guiding principles were this, that we were going to be, uh, we were going to continue our mission, we were going to continue our Catholic identity, and the third principle was we were going to have enough governance necessary to accomplish the first two. So every single opportunity we look at, we go back to those guiding prim principles and we say, is this going to maintain or enhance our Catholic identity? Check. Is this going to maintain or enhance our mission? Check. Is this going to gi give us the governance necessary to continue those? Check. Then we go with that. And if there's only one check missing, we don't pursue that opportunity. So, so I would say that's, that's how we start, and then from there we build uh, into the future a direction and it is purely directional uh, we know that that you have to be nimble and there may be opportunities where we have to come off the 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 road a little bit to snag that opportunity or there may be a uh, a situation where we get uh, we get hit with a negative and we have to deal with that uh, in the proper way, shape, or form uh, in order to move on. Uh, but one thing we learned for sure, it's mostly about offense. We have to think about defense, but it's mostly about offense, and we have to stop worrying about the, too much about the defense. Um, so, as one uh, professional fighter once put it, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been talking about value and value-based reimbursement. What are you doing in order to be better positioned as we move towards that? Sure, well, one, what the big, one of the biggest things CMC has done is what I mentioned uh, previously, and that is we have formed our own insurance company with other institutions in Tufts Health Plan, called Tufts Health Freedom Plan. And uh, that is one way where our chief medical offices of all the hospitals sit down, get together, and they look at ways that they can make things better for patients, lower cost, higher quality. In other words, they look at evidence-based medicine and they roll it out to the institutions, uh, at every institution. We also pool our resources together so that we can have the infrastructure necessary to, to have the value proposition. So it may be difficult for one hospital to have many care coordinators to have better value to patients to direct them in the right way. But together, 
we can send them off to school and we can disperse them among all the hospitals. So there's a, 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 a larger platform to, to spread that infrastructure that costs money in order to do that. Specifically CMC, what we're doing is we've, uh, we've partnered with Bedford Ambulatory Surgical Center to, to form a, what they call a site of service imaging center. And what that means is that instead of you going to the hospital and having an MRI for $2,000, you go to this imaging center and you can get it for six to $700. And this MRI is an open MRI, which is the only true open MRI in the, in the state. And so we're constantly trying to uh, up the quality, up the service, and lower the cost for patients. The healthcare field continues to be a field defined by change. What are the key opportunities that you've identified and are pursuing as a CEO? Where are the growth opportunities? Interesting. I would say that we are, we feel that the growth opportunities um, are in the form of having a bigger base. In other words, more covered lives, as we like to call it. Because as we move more into ACOs and risk models of payment, you need, to have, you need to be able to mitigate that risk by having more patients. And so what we have done is we have a hub and spoke model in which we are the hub and what we do is we put physicians in hospitals all across the state to help them with services that they didn't have before. So the hospital wins, that community wins, the patients win because they have access locally. But at the same time, if someone needs a higher level of care, they come to Catholic Medical Center. Another way we've done it is two years ago, we started the first community patient transfer center. So we have a patient transfer center. One call does it all. So any hospital in the state can call us when they need a higher level of care and say, I have this patient that we need help with and we bring them here. And if we can't bring them here for whatever reason, we find a place to send them where they would get the care that they need. And so I believe that, that excelling in key service areas, expanding our geographic reach and extending our covered lives, and engaging in our stakeholders is our growth proposition. Probably the, one of the biggest buzzes now is population health. Yes. What kind of efforts are you working on in your system or in cooperation with other organizations on population health, and what are the economic incentives to support population health efforts? So we are working at, with Granite Health in there. Um, we're building a population population health base at Granite Health and we have purchased the Athena uh, system in which we put all our clinical data in and we can learn from not just our own organization but from the five organizations together and we get before we were only able to get administrative data which is right from the, the, uh, the billing, but now we're able to get clinical data, which is meaningful data. So now we're in the process of turning that data into knowledge and hopefully someday into wisdom. Uh, so that is what we're doing and it has been highly successful thus far. We have uh, rolled that out to all the hospitals in, in Granite Health and aside from CMC doing many of the other things on their own, we're, we're working with our partners, both in Granite Health 
as well as the partners, uh, our other partner hospitals that we work with uh, on initiatives that will move us in that right direction. What are the incentives? Unfortunately, there's not a lot of incentives out there right now, and that's why it's moving uh, slower than many would like it to move. But there is uh, CMS, or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, do, they do have a, uh, an incentive program called value-based purchasing, in which if you have higher quality, higher outcomes, better processes, higher patient experience, and less complications, then you get they will give you back the money they took, <laughs> and hopefully even and hopefully even more. So there are incentives uh, in that in that regard, and the other incentive is that there are penalties, for example, for readmission. And CMC is lucky to be one of the actually the only community hospital in in the state that did not get a penalty for excess readmissions for three years running. So um, we must be doing something right in the regard to the value proposition. Nice. I'd like to transition and talk specifically about leadership. How would you define your leadership philosophy? I would say that it is definitely a servant uh, leadership position. I really feel that it's not about me. It's about the position and the organization and the stakeholders. Uh, many. I don't think a week goes by where I don't make a decision that po at least potentially can hurt me, but it's what's good for the patient or good for the organization, so I make that decision. I think that's, that's truly the, what, we, what we need to do, and it, it's a tough way to be, but, but I think it's, it's the best way to lead, in a, in, especially in a nonprofit profit organization. I would also say that uh, the leadership style is one of getting good people and empowering them and letting them do their job. I don't believe in micromanaging. I believe the exact opposite. I believe in giving them as much autonomy as, as I can and, and they feel really good because they can actually make decisions without coming to me every time about a decision. And they know what I want they understand the vision, they know what, what, where, where the direction is, so why not give them the ability to meet with their colleagues outside and internally and make the decisions that need to be made to move the organization along. What would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader, and how do you aspire to those yourself? Uh, I would say, most importantly, a leader has to be a good listener. I would say a leader uh, has to understand that they don't know everything. They need to understand what they don't know, and they need to continue to learn each and every day. Uh, leaders should be humble because it prevents you from having those blinders. You want to listen to as many different people as possible at different levels and different stakeholders because in order to make good decisions, you need to hear from people who see things through different lenses. And I don't hire people who are yes men or yes women. I hire just the opposite. I, have, I hire people who challenge me because it's important that they challenge me for, in order for me, selfishly, to be able to make the best decisions possible. How did you come to believe in these particular characteristics? Did you see someone that, that did you, is there someone that you observed? 
Um, where did you where did you learn your leadership style from? That's interesting. Uh, that kind of gets into uh, the usual question people ask me is, who's your mentor and and who do you who did you try to model from? And people never like my answer because it's not one person. Okay. I, I always I always feel that no one person has it all. So all throughout my life, whether it was with my parents or my brothers and sisters or my friends or the professional people that I know and have met and work with, I try to take the best of every individual and I'm in awe that so many people have such great talent, is, talent in certain areas and the, the areas that they're average or that they're not good, I'll just leave that behind. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I have to say that um, through, through keen observation of people, I try to incorporate the good of people. And I do feel that most people have these good behaviors and good talent and, and, and uh, professional uh, behaviors and leadership. And I try to incorporate that, whether it's someone on TV, a political figure, or someone in our own backyard. You mentioned a minute ago you, you don't hire yes men. Right. What do you look for when you're hiring a, a leader? I, I look for people who have a good work ethic. I look for people who are very loyal. And I'm not, not necessarily loyal to me, but that's important. But loyal to an organization and put the organization above perhaps their personal needs. I look toward leaders that are, that are open, transparent, and highly ethical. I don't want anyone who can get there by shortcuts or through unethical ways. And I also don't, there's plenty of good people out there. I try not to hire mean people. <laughs> <laughs> what do you look for when you're evaluating your leaders? Well, I, um, I, I look for what they've done in their and, and how much risk they take when it comes to judgment and moving uh, the needle. I, I think that people should be doers. I, have, I love teaching and I love people who are very well organized and I think those are important. But when it comes right down, there, needs to, there need to be deliverables. We need to have goals um, that are smart goals. And we know what that is. They, they need they need to be uh, achievable, they need to be relevant, they need to be time-oriented, but most importantly, they, they, they need to be specific and, and they need to match up with our strategy and our organizational goals as well. So I, I take that all of that into cons consideration, but also the soft areas of how they interact with other people. It doesn't help me or this organization to be good partners to external, uh, external relationships that we have if the people I send out are not going to be that way. They are the face of the organization and we take a lot of pride in being a good partner to our partners and there's something to that. That, and, and that is that when they're in trouble, we drop everything and we help them out and we say what we mean and we mean what we say 
and we and it doesn't matter if the partnership or the relationship results in them going up 10% and us going up 5%. To, to me, if we're going up, that's a win. I do want to ask you about mentors. Um, mm -hmm. You had mentioned earlier that, that you um, didn't have any one particular mentor, but did you have anyone that helped influence your thinking about kind of your career and, and where you wanted to go? I would say that if I, if I had to pick one, because everyone wants one, <laughs> it, would, it would have to be my college anatomy professor. Okay. And what she taught me was, she started me right from the very beginning with professional behavior in to, to set your, your sights high, to achieve goals that were worthy, and, and to put a lot of time and effort into what you're doing and be proud of that. And so that anatomy professor, unfortunately, is deceased, but uh, Dr. Barbara Stahl at St. Anselm College w was probably the closest thing to a mentor that, that, that I've had. An individual mentor. An individual yeah. mentor, okay. correct. Okay. How do you develop leaders within, within the organization? What are your expectations specifically for mentorship within your organization from your leaders to their people? Sure. I, I, we have a, a director of organi organizational development, and uh, that person holds classes. We have a, um, uh, a leadership academy, and we put our up-and-coming rising stars into that up and, uh, leadership academy. We also, that person also teaches many classes. Uh, on everything from email etiquette to uh, professional behavior and uh, career development of many different kinds and sorts. And, and the academic, excuse me, the uh, Leadership Academy, although that person runs it, every single senior leader takes part in going to one of those meetings, being a part of it, in mentoring during that process. And we have to give up a lot of time for these people to go there, full, uh, a full day uh, every week for six weeks. And, and there are many other types of leadership programs that we hold in the institution. But we also expect that our senior leaders and our managers and our directors, that they take people under their wing and they mentor them. And when they're not, they get called out. You know, we you know we say you know why doesn't why, why doesn't your this person in your command know how to do this? Why, why haven't you taught them how to do this? You know, so we don't say they have an issue. We say the leader has an issue if that person doesn't know how to do X. And so so we really try to to foster that mentorship, and and we do have a succession planning and that succession planning, they need to report that to me. And, and I have a succession planning uh, from day one. And it's not about being afraid of your job, it, it's being confident in your job and being, and being accountable to the organization that you're, you're mentoring someone so, or, or many people so that they can take your job when whatever happens, if you get hit by a bus or you retire or whatever. <laughs> we, all, we all get off the bus eventually, That's right? right? Do you, are you a member of any professional organizations? 
Yes, I'm a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives. In the American, they changed their name, but it's um, Physician Leadership, um, American Association for Physician Leadership. Um, and so those are the two major memberships I'm associated with. Uh, some others that are you know less so with the state and so forth. Um, I am a part of um, a member of the New Hampshire Hospital Association and so forth. So we, it's a round table with many uh, hospital leaders. At Granite Health, the, the five CEOs meet every three weeks for several hours, and it's a commitment. But we all show up in person in Concord, and, and that fosters a very professional relationship. And so, so I think the professional uh, associations are very important, but they're only one one aspect of uh, keeping up with your professional career and development. What do you do to keep up with your professional career and development? Oh, aside from those relationships, those uh, and uh, I read a lot. I I read everything and every and and you name it when it comes to me. And I think people in this organization actually get surprised by how much I read because I just always love to read and. I'm fascinating by a whole host of different topics. So uh, I, don't, I, I don't just read the, the trade, typical trade magazines, which are very, very important, but it's important also to read your local paper and the national paper and also other trade journals like Harvard Business Review and, and so forth. I go to a lot of courses. I still keep up with my um, CMEs or um, medical education. and. I take, sometimes I take courses that I may not need for this job, but I always find something out of it that I can take in and incorporate. Why would, be, what would, it, why would it be important for a young person who's looking to make a transition into either healthcare administration or maybe a physician looking to make the transition to a leadership role? Why would it be important for them to be involved in some sort of professional organization like ACHE or uh, one of the similar physician-oriented organizations? Well, I think the, the most important thing is networking. I think networking is something that I didn't realize how important it was. As a physician, you don't have to network. You know, it's the typical, you hang out your shingle and patients come, or they don't, based on your quality and your personality. But when it comes to hospital administration, um, you really, it, it's good to have that networking. You learn a lot. Everything from, from the, the tricks of the trade and what, it, what is required to do the job to that professional attitude and uh, that professional behavior that needs to be there by your side when you're advancing in your career. Also, it's about learning, it's about education, and it's about validation. Many, many times I will go to uh, a week-long course and I will realize that I, if I could only pick out the stuff that I learned, it would probably be three hours. However, I don't know what three hours it was, so I had to go to the whole thing. But even so, it's still okay because the things I'm doing well or the things I know, it's validating. And I think there's something to that validation process of hearing something and knowing that you're, you're doing that or you've done it in the past and you're up to date. So let's close on this. 
What advice would you have to people just starting a career in healthcare administration, either clinicians looking to transition into a leadership role or early careerist administrators? What should they be doing to be successful? What should they be reading, listening to, organizations they should belong to? Well, I think they should be belong to their professional organizations. I think they should be reading everything. You know, the trade journals like Modern Healthcare uh, Magazine is important. Becker's Review is an email that you can uh, be a part of. Everyone will find what helps them the most, but there has to be, they need to organize that reading material and that education so that it's not on occasion, but it becomes part of your daily routine. So listen and read, read everything you can Listen to, to everyone you can. You don't have to take their advice or, or do what they say, but listen to everyone you can and, and active listening, not just listening like we, how our children listen. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that they should put their head down. They should have a, a work ethic. They should understand the importance of loyalty to an organization in a group of people when I say that, that, that it's so important that if the people around you are, have your back and you have their back, it makes your job easier and it also makes your world much better. Because let's face it, we spend a great deal of our time at work. And so uh, doing to others as you would have one do to you uh, is a very good, important aspect of it. So um, I think that Master what you do very well and always ask for more projects. Get out there and, and, and be a little bit aggressive at saying, I can take on more. I want, I want more. Because we in the leadership, we see that and we say, that's someone who wants to be a leader. That's someone who wants to rise. It's not, don't ask for another position, a higher position. Mm -hmm ask for the projects, ask to do more, ask to be outside your comfort zone, and then the position will find you as it found me. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. You're welcome. Anytime. Anything I can do to help. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.